Amen. Well, uh, man, I'm really excited to be with. I've been looking for my phone. It's been sitting here this whole time. Let me find it. Man, it's good to be with you guys this weekend. It's good to have folks from, very, from all three expressions come together and to be able to spend this time together. And uh, I'm grateful to God for his work of grace in and through each and every one of you, in and through the life of our church. And I'm really looking forward to diving into the direction that I believe the Lord would have us go in together as a church over these next couple of days. And, and one of the points of emphasis that we're going to go after together uh, when we come together in these times has to do with the relationship between Christ and the scriptures. Uh, we're going to cover three sessions. Tonight, we're going to look at this theme of magnifying Christ through the scriptures. How do we see Jesus in the Bible? And I'm not going to go to a how-to sermon as much as I just want to model it. I want us to look at a story that will showcase Christ in such a way that will seize our affections, that will seize our hearts, and help us make sense of the Bible as a whole. And then tomorrow morning, we're going to come back and we're going to dive into uh, meeting Christ in the scriptures. How, How do we study the Bible? When you sit down to read the scriptures on a Tuesday afternoon over a cup of coffee or whatever the case may be, and you open the Bible, what is it that you're looking to do? What are you looking for in the passages that you're reading? How how can you and I meet with Christ every time we open the Bible and we spend time reading its pages? And then tomorrow night, we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about making Christ known through the scriptures. What role does the Bible play in our efforts to make disciples? And that'll be a question that Bryant's going to be tackling for us and with us tomorrow night, and so we're really looking forward to exploring that direction. And so that's where we're heading, magnifying Christ in the word, meeting Christ in the word, and then making Christ known through the word. That's where we're going over these next few sessions together. So before we jump into tonight's uh, theme, let me voice one more prayer for us. And we'll get after it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us in Jesus. We thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection. We thank you for giving us the scriptures so that we might know him, so that we might uh, learn why we should put our trust and our faith in him, why he's worthy of our worship, why he is worthy of our lives. And so I just pray that you would give us grace over these few moments, Lord, that you would, that, that your son, our savior, would be magnified in our study of the scriptures tonight. Uh, we thank you for the Bible, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand uh, the Bible all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we step towards this theme tonight, our, our, our approach to the Bible and magnifying Christ in the scriptures really comes down to our basic understanding of what the Bible is as a book. Uh, and there are some of us perhaps have an understanding of the scriptures that say, you know, it's really no more than a large instruction manual on morality telling us what to do and what not to do. What does it mean to be a good person? What constitutes a bad person? What does it mean to give, live a good life? What does it mean to live a bad life? And so we sometimes have this understanding of the Bible that says it's a collection of, of or it's an instruction manual on morality and no reason why the Bible sometimes just doesn't do it for us in our lives because we're reading it as that. And to be honest with you, that's not very uh, inspiring, it's not very empowering, and it's not very encouraging as it relates to uh, what God intends for the Bible to be in our lives. And then there are others, perhaps, who approach the Bible and they view it as just a a man-made compilation of religious writings that have been used at times to oppress people of various stripes, and the Bible has certainly been used and misused in those kinds of ways. There's no doubt about it. The Bible has been misused by people to oppress people, to hold others down, and to not communicate the saving grace that is inherent within the scriptures. And so we certainly want to reject that understanding of the Bible. We don't want to allow 
those who may have used the Bible badly to ruin the Bible for us. We want to approach the, the Bible gladly. And then uh, there are some who also uh, perhaps take a, a very limited and narrow approach to the Bible, believing that it's just a collection of inspiring tables, inspiring tales, similar to Aesop's fables. So we read these stories to get some type of inspiration that can get us through a day or to uh, brighten up a sad day or whatever the case may be. And, and the Bible has things that is inspiring, there's no doubt. But when you read the scriptures, you're not reading a collection of inspiring tales similar to Aesop's fables. Essentially, when you step into the Bible, you're reading a story. You're reading a story of redemption. You're reading a story of God's love and his passion for humanity and his love and his passion for his people and his love and his passion to recreate the universe that has gone sideways due to sin and pride and self-centeredness and all the things that we talked a little bit about over these past couple of weeks on Sunday. Uh, One of my best descriptions of the Bible, I've shared this with you multiple times, but I believe that repetition is the best teacher. That's why I do like to repeat myself on Sundays and in sessions like this, but one of the best descriptions I've ever read about what the Bible is and how it is to function in our lives to magnify Christ comes from the introduction uh, to the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, it's, a, it's a Bible written for kids, but it is just such a wonderful description of the big themes and the big storyline of the Bible, and the writer describes the scriptures this way. She says, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should do and shouldn't do. Now the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. The Bible is about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It is an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and has come to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. And every story, get this, every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, with that in mind, uh, I want to take you to a couple of passages over these next few moments, the first of which you don't have to turn to, but it'll pop up on the screen. The first passage is found in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. So hold on uh, to this idea that the Bible is telling this one story and there's one hero uh, and that it's not ultimately about us. And as we turn into 1 John chapter, four, chapter 5, verse 4, listen to what uh, is written in that passage. There the Apostle John writes, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's referring to Christians as people who've put their trust in the gospel. We have overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Then he goes on, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
So you have this idea of victory, you have this idea of faith, you have this idea of overcoming the world. And there's one word that's translated in that passage, it's used four times. It's the Greek term Nike, which means victory. It's translated in your Bible, it's the word overcome. Every, see, every time you see the word overcome, that's the word being translated there, Nike or victory. And yes, that is the term that Phil Knight used when he was naming his athletic apparel company. He wanted to use the word Nike for victory. That's where it's all coming from. And, and now, the victory, what's interesting about that passage is that the victory that John is describing that you and I have right now is a present-day reality. He's using a present-tense dynamic, saying this is ours as we sit here in this moment right now. We are victorious people. It's a present-day reality, but notice. Notice where the victory, how the victory comes to our lives. How is it that we overcome the world? He says that, it is a victory that comes to us through faith in someone else. Through faith, not in a principle, through faith, not in a value system, through faith, not in uh, a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister. He says, no, you put your, your, your victory as a follower of Jesus, the way we overcome the world is by putting our faith in a specific person named Jesus Christ. And this is what it means to be a believer. We are people who've identified with him and he has identified himself with us. This is the one uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones is referring to when she says every story in the Bible whispers his name, referring to Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Savior. So we have this victory right now and it is a victory that comes to us through our faith in Jesus. Now, it's very important that you and I understand the nature of this victory. You might think of it like, uh, so right now, uh, the finals are being played. Now, don't tell, don't, if anybody knows any update on the game, don't say anything. I'll run out the room. If you want the sermon to end, I'll just go somewhere else. I, I don't want to hear uh, an update on the game. I'm, I'm recording it, and you might think you're crazy. You're going to wait two days? I'm going to try. And so I'm going to try to go two days without learning anything. But I'm a big basketball fan. I've been following the playoffs fairly closely. I've, I've watched Steph Curry play since he was in college. I've been a huge fan of his and, and watching them play. And it's really interesting how our fanship works. Anytime you attach yourself and you begin identifying yourself with a player or with a team who's about to achieve, achieve something great. great. Uh, say, for example, you go to a Seattle Sounders game. You sit in the stands and the Sounders score. You stand up, you begin to cheer, and you begin to say things like, we're winning, right? And then after the game, you walk out of the stadium saying, we won, and you highlight, you high-five everybody around you. What you're what you're doing there is you're taking credit for something that you had no business doing. Uh, you didn't win a thing when the Sounders won the game. Whatever victory you feel or sense in that moment, it is, a, it is what's called a vicarious victory. It's a vicarious victory. It's not a victory that has come to you because you have somehow contributed to the outcome of the game. It is the victory that has come to you because you've identified with the one who was victorious. That's what it means to have a fanship or loyalty to a team. That's what vicarious victory is getting after. Now, it's interesting when the Sounders lose, you don't, you don't, you're not, you don't say, well, uh, we lost. It's more like, well, they lost. They need to get their act together. You, you want to distance yourself from that, and that's where the rubber meets the road. But what's being described every time that type of experience happened? It is a vicarious victory. And when you think about the victory being described here in 1 John chapter 5, understand that whatever victory we have as Christians, whatever that victory means and whatever it is in re reference to, it is a vicarious victory. It is, a vi it is a victory that's come to our lives, not because we have contributed to the outcome of some event, 
but because we've identified with the one who was victorious. And we've identified with him so closely that his win becomes our win. His victory becomes our, our victory. That's what John is getting after here. He's saying this present day reality, this victory that we have comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you and I read the Bible, if we approach the scriptures uh, as a book that is primarily about us, if the Bible's about you and I primarily rather than about Jesus, what's going to happen is we're going to read it as a compilation of morality tales or we're going to read it as a collection of life skills. And what's going to happen is we're going to pick and choose the ones that fit, fit us best or move us the most so that we can live what we think to be a victorious life. We'll look for inspiration and skills needed to overcome our own struggles, to overcome our own temptations, and to overcome our own challenges. And what happens is that if we manage to make any progress at all, if we make any progress in those directions at all, you will become the hero of your own life story. Your victory will become because you've taken the inspiration, you've taken the morality, you've taken the principles, and you've applied them in a certain direction. And, and if you have made progress, if you have done anything progressive in that direction, then you will become the hero of your own of your own life story. And if we read the Bible that way, then we're gonna resolve to fight against everything that stands in opposition to God. Our sin, our enemy, Satan, and even death itself, we will try to stand against all of that on our own. Now, when you go to 1 John chapter five, when John, what John calls the world, that's what he's describing. He's describing this system of opposition that stands against the person and the purpose of God. And he's saying if we fail to realize that dynamic, we're, gonna be, we're not gonna be ultimately victorious. And that has to do with our perspective on the Bible, of whether or not we're reading it as a book primarily about you and I. But here's the flip side. If you and I recognize that the Bible is primarily about Jesus, and if our victory is a vicarious victory, then we're gonna step aside, we're gonna dislodge ourselves from the center position as we read the Bible, and we're gonna look to Jesus who is infinitely more skilled, who is infinitely more qualified, who is infinitely better than us to overcome all that stands against us in the world. And so with that in mind, I wanna show you how that can play out in the way you read the Bible. I'm going to take you to a story in the Old Testament that's very popular, it's very familiar, and I'm going to try to bring this out. So if you got to so turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. The difference between reading the Bible as a book about you and reading the Bible a book about Jesus. If it's about you, then you've got to uh, be victorious by drawing various things from the scriptures. If it's about Jesus, then your victory comes vicariously through your faith in the Savior. Now, I'm going to show you how this works in this story. 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is the story of David and Goliath. If you've been exposed to Christianity or even just pop culture in general, you've heard references to David and Goliath. This story, there's some working knowledge of this story in your uh, framework, in your outlook. And so, with that story, 1 Samuel chapter 17, you're going to notice that it is one of the longest narratives in the scriptures, and so I'm going to summarize parts of it, and I'm going to call your attention to other parts of it, uh, really key verses. And just on a side note, uh, as we get into how to study the Bible tomorrow, uh, the key portions of Old Testament narratives, anytime you read a story in the Old Testament, the real key significant portions of that, uh, says the trait of Hebrew narratives is always tied to the, to the language. 
is when characters are speaking. That's really what you want to zero in on and draw a lot of your meat from as you are reading Old Testament narratives. It's found in usually the, the, the language or the spoken parts. Anyways, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's walk through this story together and try to magnify Christ. It says, beginning of verse 1, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Sukkah, Soko, I'll pronounce it that way. Now, also, on another side note, if you're ever reading through the Bible and you come to a point and you're reading out loud in your missional community and you don't know the words, just act confident. They don't know it either and you'll be okay. <laughs> and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in <laughs> Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of, of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. So here's the picture. Here's the scene. You have two mountains with a valley in between and on one, uh, uh, the, the valley in between is this, this dried up ravine and the Philistine army, which is the, the main antagonist during this era of the Bible, uh, the Philistines are standing on one mountaintop and the people of Israel are standing on the other and this valley is where the battle is going to take place. Look at verse four. It says in verse four, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now circle that word champion. Now this chapter is the only time that word is used in the entire Old Testament. Uh, the writer is putting something together for us that's very significant. He's and that word champion literally means the man between two armies, or in other words, the decisive man, the one who's going to determine the outcome of this war between God's people, the Israelites, and God's enemies, the Philistines. And this was, without question, a decisive man when you look at how Goliath is described between this guy who's come out between the two armies. He's, he's, just, he's described as being six cubits and a span tall, which works out to be about nine feet, nine inches. Now, this is a big dude. Now, usually when you think about a guy who's that tall, say nine feet, nine inches, you, you think Yao Ming or something like that. Shaquille O'Neal's not even that tall. And uh, you think tall, lanky, uncoordinated, right? That's usually what would come out of somebody being that big. It'd be kind of like that guy I faced in seventh grade who was six foot ten, uh, the other Andy I talked about on Sunday. But this dude's not lanky, and this dude is not uncoordinated. This is a, this is a giant soldier. It says in verse 5 that he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Now, that works out to being about 125 pounds. So his coat weighs more than a lot of the Israelite people. That, that's how big this dude is. And he's got this coat, and in addition to that coat, he is wearing bronze armor. Bronze armor on his legs, and it says, we go on reading, he had a javelin of bronze flung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That means the point of the spear was 15 pounds. This is what he's wielding. So here you have a guy named Goliath, a mighty warrior, a daunting enemy. And if you want to take it one step further, there's a shield bearer who went before him, a, a shield bearer who carried his shield out onto the battlefield. And so not only is this guy a giant brute of a man with, with all this heavy armor, he's got a sidekick who goes with him and he carries a shield the size of a man. That's what's going on. Verse 8, it says that Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, this giant of a man, why have you come out to, the, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? 
Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. That's the challenge. I'm stepping out. I'm representing the Philistines. You send a warrior to represent you. We'll fight to the death. Whoever comes out on top uh, wins. And if I do, that means Israel become the Philistines' slaves. If Israel's champion wins, the Philistines will become the Israel's slave. And so what, what we find here in how Goliath is described and this challenge that he's making, we find an enemy that is far too big for Israel to handle. And he's issuing a challenge that has devastating consequences. And when you read the details, so much detail goes into the description of Goliath that you understand that the, this, this detail is designed to call our attention to the impossibility of this challenge that was being issued. You're supposed to read about Goliath and think nobody's going to stand a chance against him. Nobody can face him. There was a Jewish scholar by the name of Robert Alter who put it this way. He says, you never see these kinds of details on anyone in the Bible. The reason, says Alter, is that this enemy is basically invincible. No one can defeat him. He is too big. His armor is too strong. His skill is too great. It will take an act of God to defeat him. No wonder no wonder when Goliath steps out into this valley and issues this challenge, it says the people were terrified and dismayed. That's their response. They are terrified and dismayed. Nobody is stepping forward, not even King Saul. Saul was the king of Israel. He was the one who was to defend Israel in battle. He was the leader. He was the guy who was supposed to step up for his people, but he's not doing it. And he was the only one who could even come close to matching Goliath in size, King Saul was a tall dude. 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 10, verse 23, it says, and when Saul stood among the people, he was taller than any of them from his shoulders upward. He was a big guy, the biggest one in Israel. But what you find in Saul and how he's described and his actions in this story is that he's not a servant king. He's not a servant king who gives himself to protect his people. Instead, he's a selfish king who seeks self-preservation. And so rather than representing his people like a good and godly king should, what, what he tries to do is what so many of us try to do when we have problems. He tries to throw money at it. He says, okay, I'm just going to throw money at this, at this problem. And so he offers payment for someone else to go and to fight Goliath. Then you look at verse 25. You drop down to verse 25. It says that Saul offers money, tax exemption, and the hand of his daughter. He's trying to solve the problem with those types of means. And so that's the scene when you get to the end of verse 11. You've got this giant of a man defying Israel and, the God of, and, and Israel's God, and everybody there is afraid, nobody's stepping up. But then in verse 12, the scene changes. It's almost movie-like, where you go from the battlefield to a nice sunny meadow with a handsome shepherd boy who was in a little town, get this, called Bethlehem. Hold on to that detail. A little shepherd boy hanging out in Bethlehem. His name was David, and David was the youngest of son of Jesse. He was too young to fight in the military, and so he was a shepherd caring for his father's sheep. But three of his older brothers were a part of the Israelite military. They were there on the battlefield. Then in verse 17, Jesse calls him aside and says to him, I need you to go to the battlefield and take some resources to your brothers and find out how they're doing. 
And then get this in verse 18. Verse 18, he tells David, and I want you to bring some token back from them. So he asks for a token. Now, Jesse has no clue what David's going to bring back from the battlefield. (laughs) And if you know the story, if you don't, spoiler alert, I do that a lot, sorry, uh, he's going to bring back Goliath's head. That's quite a token. That's what's going to come down. And so David rose up early the next morning and he went out in obedience to his father. And when he arrives, we find that in verse 21, get this, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David went and greeted his brothers, verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So everybody is shrinking back in fear. And put yourself in David's shoes. You see Goliath come forward. He stands in defiant opposition of the God of Israel. And this may have been speculation. It may have been the first time that David's ever heard God's name defamed like this. Maybe the first time he's been exposed to that type of uh, clashing worldview. But then he sees all the people of God, all the Israelites and all the soldiers shrinking back in faithless fear. And this shocks him. So he asks, what's going on? Look at verse 25. It then says, the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. So David talks about Goliath in a way that is totally different from everyone else. He talks about Goliath as an uncircumcised Philistine, which meant he wasn't a part of God's covenant people. He he was standing in opposition to the living God. He's talking about Goliath in a way that the other people aren't. And so they say to David, did you see this man, the man who's come up? And he's like, yeah, he's uncircumcised. Who does he think he is? How How dare he defy the armies of the living God? And David gets riled up. And eventually, he volunteers to go before Goliath, verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And he begins to demonstrate boldness and courage and confidence. He begins to show a little faith. He says, don't let their heart fail. I'm going to go fight the Philistine. But Saul replies in verse 33, you are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So according to Saul, David is no match for Goliath. But notice what David says in response. He says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear or took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out, delivered it out of his mouth. And, it, and if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And so with those words, David flips the script on Saul and on all the other Israelites who were trembling in fear. You see, the issue wasn't so much whether he or anyone else could stand up against Goliath. 
The issue was always whether Goliath could stand up against the Lord. That's, he's flipping the script. He's turning the table. It was a difference in perspective. You see, there's no doubt that when situations and circumstances arise in opposition against all that God desires to do in us and through us, and we tend to focus more on the problems, and as we focus more on them, they always get bigger than they really are. And that's when we become afraid. That's when we get dismayed. That's when our hearts, like the Israelites, begin to fail us. The circumstances get so big and so overwhelming, so consuming, and it's in those moments we have to remember what what David is remembering in this moment, that God is greater, that God is bigger, God is stronger. Verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped a sword over his armor. <laughs> but this was futile, wasn't it? Look how David, David says to Saul, I, I cannot go with these things, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. You see, this is, this is very interesting. Saul tried to dress David up like Goliath to meet Goliath. Saul tried to make David like Goliath in order to beat him. A fight fire with fire type of approach. And how often do you and I, are we tempted to do the same thing in our lives? If we see someone cheating the system, we got to cheat the system. If we see someone else being, using underhanded tactics to get an upper-handed advantage on someone, we have to do the same thing. We have to fight fire with fire. Our hearts are prone to do this. And so Saul's trying to get David to fight like Goliath. But David doesn't try to fight like Goliath. So you see in verse 40, it says in verse 40 that David took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. These stones are probably about the size of a tennis ball. These, these aren't little pebbles that Asher likes to throw into the creek. These are, these are solid rocks. And with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. And so the stage is set. David dropped, cast off the armor. He goes before the Philistine to represent Israel. Don't miss that. This little shepherd boy from Bethlehem representing Israel in this story. Then in verse 41, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you have come to me with sticks? He was insulted by David's approach. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now, it says that he cursed David. Now, again, think, think big picture now about the Bible. Earlier in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God begins to execute his plan of redemption by calling a man named Abraham to uh, receive his promises, to be the father of the covenant, so to speak. And he tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And so think about the story then. Goliath, in cursing David, who is a descendant of Abraham, Goliath has just brought down judgment upon himself. That's what he's just done unwittingly. And as a result, he's going to experience the curse of God. Look at verse 44. The Philistine then said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now, those are fighting words. But, but David could, could hold his own in a verbal battle. If, if they got into a little um, slam moment and they're going head to head with words, uh, listen to what David said next. He says, well, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines, not just yours, but all the Philistines, this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Now, that's his response. That's his war of words. But notice where he's putting the accent. Notice where David says, uh, who, the day, who David says the warrior actually is. He doesn't say it's him, does he? David's not the warrior. The Lord of hosts is. The Lord of hosts, the God of war, he's the one who's gonna do this. And, and so what David just said to Goliath is clear. Goliath, in just a moment, you and everyone else, including the Israelites who are cowering on the sidelines are going to recognize that the God of Israel reigns supreme, that he does not suffer fools who threaten his name or his people. Then you look at verse 48. The Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. You can hear a collective kind of gasp on both mountains as these warriors are about to meet. And then David put his hand in his bag. He took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead, just sunk it right there into his skull. David, the Philistine, Goliath, fell on his face to the ground. He falls down. Uh, no, don't miss that. We're going to come back to that in a, in a second. But he, he falls down, face down on the ground. Verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So the fight's basically over. Remember what David said? He said, the Lord saves not with sword and spear. So he killed him with the rock, right? That's how he killed him. And it just so happens that if you go back to the book of Leviticus and you see what happens to a person who curses God, the, the punishment for blaspheming God, which is what Goliath is doing in this story, what's the punishment? Stoning. This dude just, the law of God, so to speak, just crushed Goliath. God's law crushed him. Verse 51, then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his, his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. So he knocked him face down on the ground and then he decapitated him. Now, this, this is a, this is a the Bible's very fun to read. This is one of those, this is one of those stories. If, if your stomach's turning, I'm sorry. He takes his head off. And turn back to, uh, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Samuel chapter 5, let me remind you of something that already took place in this, in this book. Something that already happened before among the Philistines. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is where the, God's glory, God's presence dwelt uh, with his people. The Ark of the Covenant was the most holy uh, place object on earth and but the Philistines captured it and when they captured it they brought it back to their land and they put it in their temple with their god named Dagon and so you've got this false god Dagon this idol in his home and listen to the story in chapter 5 verse 1 the Philistines captured the ark of God they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon they put they put him up next, they put each object up next to each other. And listen to this. When the people of Ashdod rose up early the next day, Dagon had fallen face down toward, on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So that's step one. 
face downward before the picture of the true God. And so they take Dagon, they put him back in his place. Verse four of chapter five, it says, when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off from his threshold. Step two, uh, the head of Dagon and his hands were cut off from his torso. So step two, decapitation. So you've got a connection. There's a deep connection between 1 Samuel 5 and 1 Samuel chapter 17. You have this picture of their false god being struck down before the supremacy of the God of Israel. Then in chapter 17, the representative of these people, David, strikes down and decapitates Goliath, their champion, before the servant of Yahweh again. So the writer is emphasizing time and time again all throughout 1 Samuel that how the battle, every battle, ultimately belongs to the Lord. And after Goliath falls in chapter 17, the Philistines turn and they flee. And then you get to the end in verse 51. The Philistines saw that their champion was dead and they fled. The men of Israel and Judah arose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistines and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now, with that story before us, that's how the story ends. And with that story before us, think about what it means for us. Think about what it means to read the Bible as a book, not primarily about us, but a book that's primarily about Jesus. Here's three facets you gotta, you gotta hold on to. Facet number one. In that story, you have an enemy that's too big to handle. Facet number two. There is a faithless and fearful people whose hearts were failing them. So one, enemy too big to handle, Two is a faithless and fearful people whose hearts were failing them. And three, there's an unexpected outsider, somebody who comes from outside the army, who steps in onto the scene and secures the victory. Now, if you and I approach the Bible as if it's a book primarily about us, then we're going to read the story of David and Goliath and think it is telling us how you and I can be brave and overcome the giants in our lives. And the point we're going to take from David and Goliath is that you and I have to be strong and courageous in our faith. That will be the primary point of that story. We'll read that story and automatically see ourselves as who? We're going to read that story and we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of David. We're going to say, we're David. And so we've got to be like him. We just need the same faith David had and we'll be able to overcome anything that we face in this life. And if we are unable to overcome the giants in our lives, so to speak, it's going to be because you and I don't have enough faith. We're not as good as David. Now, that's one of the problems I have with a lot of biblical teaching that, that or perspectives on the Bible that don't see the centrality of Jesus in the Bible. It's the problem I have with what's called the prosperity gospel movement. Perhaps you've come across teaching that's been described as uh, the so-called prosperity gospel this teaching that tells people that if they're not overcoming the giants of poverty and pain or sickness and suffering, then it's because their faith is too weak. Their faith is too weak. That's the reason why they're struggling. But can you imagine talking to a woman who's just giving birth to a stillborn baby and, and she asks a prominent, a proponent of the prosperity gospel, why did this happen? And if they're honest, the only thing their theology will let them say is in that moment is that your faith wasn't strong enough. You didn't imitate David. You weren't courageous. You weren't fearless. You, didn't, you weren't faithful. That's the worst type of the prospect. That's, that's like the far bad stuff. 
But the prosperity gospel approaches the Bible as if it's a book that centers on us, telling us always to put our faith in faith. Our victory comes through our faith, but our faith is placed in our faith. That's a problem. And so they'll read a story like this and they'll walk away from it, jazzed up to be like David, assuming that that's the point of the story. But that's not the point of the story. That's not the ultimate point of any story in the Bible. If you and I read the Bible as a book primarily about Christ, if we shift our perspective, then we're going to find that the story of David and Goliath has nothing to do with our imitation. It has everything to do with what's called imputation. It has everything to do with what's called substitution. It has everything to do with somebody stepping into the gap for us and doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. You see, ultimately, you and I are not David in the story of David and Goliath. You and I are Israel. If you want to see yourself in that story, see yourself as the people of Israel. See yourself as a person whose heart often fails you. See yourself as a person who is fearful and faithless. See yourself as a soldier who wants to stay back on the sidelines in desperate need of an outsider to come to your rescue. You see, what happens to David in this story, don't miss it, what happened to David when he stepped out onto the scene and he beat Goliath, that happened to Israel. His victory was their victory, wasn't it? You see, that story is about a vicarious victory. In that story, David is their champion. He is their decisive man, and his victorious outcome is transferred and applied to the entire nation. Their victory is a vicarious victory. So the message we want to take away from this story is not for you to go out and, like David, be inspired and brave when you face giants in your life. The message of this story is so much deeper than that. The story is pointing us to put, it is pointing us to God's greater story, to God's ultimate story, to God's ultimate redemption. This story is reminding us about how years later, many years later, out of the shadows of Bethlehem, another outsider stepped forward. Another outsider stepped in between a fearful and faithless people and the three-headed Goliath of sin, Satan, and death. A greater hero out of the shadows of Bethlehem stepping forward who's referred to as the son, David's greater son, the son of David, Jesus the Christ, and he stepped forward. He confronted and conquered the opposition of this world and through his sinless life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the grave, all of a sudden, we find a champion, we find a savior, we find the one to whom everything points. We find our victory. We find our victory not by trying to be like David. We find our victory by looking to who David points us to in this story. And David points us to Jesus, reminding us again that Jesus is our champion, he has conquered sin, he has conquered Satan, he has conquered death. And, and here's what that means. That means you do not fight for victory as a follower of Jesus. You're not fighting for victory against anything. You're fighting from victory. You're fighting from a position of knowing that the victory's already been won. And what matters as you journey through this world and you face hard moments and struggles and trials and various types of things, what matters in that moment isn't so much how strong your faith is. What matters in those moments is how strong the object of your faith is. 
See, we're not reading the Bible to put our faith in faith. We read and we study the scriptures to put our faith in Christ Jesus, through whom we have already overcome the world. Jesus' life is our life. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And so when we face the opposition of this world, understand that it does not have power over us in an ultimate definitive sense. That's what 1 John chapter 5 is all about. Christ has that. He lives and he dwells within us. He gives us everything we need to overcome whatever we face. So we take confidence in that. We let that reality sink in. We let that reality melt into our hearts. We let that reality uh, shape how we approach life in this world from a people who read and study and, and engages the Bible. So you consider, consider obedience for a moment. If you obeyed God for victory, this is another kind of thought on this story. If you and I try to obey God for victory, then his commands will crush us the same way the law crushed Goliath in the story of David and Goliath. If you're trying to achieve victory by your obedience, the law will crush you. But they, they, they would become burdensome, so to speak. You, you would obey God out of fear rather than love, and that's not, a, that's not the way Christ would have us live. But again, our victory is a vicarious victory, so by faith... We look to Jesus as our champion. He becomes the, our hero in the midst of every single temptation and trial so that even when we fall, we can get right back up. We can confess. We can recognize where we're wrong and we can see where Jesus is right. We can repent confidently. We can repent humbly and knowing that, that we are forgiven, knowing that we're not defeated, knowing that the ultimate outcome of our lives is determined. And so how do we read the Bible then? We read the Bible, and we try to read the Bible in such a way that every time we read it, we walk away from the Bible with our faith put in Jesus, not in any other place, any other person, any other thing. It's Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus, just like the song that we've sung a few moments ago. And so that's the general direction that we're going to go, and that's, that's the way we approach the Bible as a church. We write, read the Bible, we study the Bible, we encourage everyone to read the Bible in such a way that says the Bible is a book primarily about Jesus, not primarily about us. So we, wanna, we, we just want to revel in that reality because there's a lot of freedom there. There's a lot of freedom there. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I come before you right now and I pray that you would give us grace as we process these thoughts. If these thoughts are new to some in this space, I pray that you would uh, give grace to wrestle with them, give grace to, uh, for conversation to take place over them. And I pray, Lord, that ultimately you would lead us in the direction you would have us go as a, as a humble people whose confidence doesn't rest in ourselves, but whose confidence rests in Christ, who is our champion, who is our victor, who has done everything for us, who's, beated, who's defeated the enemy that was too big for any of us to handle, who's conquered sin, who's conquered Satan, who's conquered death, who's saved us, who's rescued us, who has redeemed us. Lord, let us, let us read the Bible in such a way that revels in that reality. Holy Spirit, would you continue to teach us over the course of these next two days on how to do that best and what that means for us? Uh, I pray that our conversations 
from this point forward would be seasoned with salt and would be edifying uh, for everyone involved as we constantly point each other to Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus. Father, it is in his name that we pray. Amen.